Hello, Julia, and hello, audience. Welcome back. Uh, we are recording super late tonight, so we are a little bit sleepy, and I am getting over a cold. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. So, yeah, it was a really uninteresting weekend for me. I slept the whole time. Julia, what did you do? Um, also, I had a pretty not exciting weekend, but I did go see I'm Not Your Negro last night, um, which I definitely recommend. It was a lot, so be prepared. But it was super informative, really kind of devastating at the same time. It was just kind of crazy to see all these themes and all this footage from the 1960s and then to see that that stuff is still going on today. But still, James Baldwin is a beautiful writer and it's like a narration of something he wrote and it was very cool to see. That sounds awesome. Should we get started with the third episode of Babes Talk Money? Okay, so this week we're doing a school called Austrian. It is different than a lot of the other schools that we will talk about on this podcast, particularly because it's very right-leaning. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit on the show, um, if you've listened to past episodes, about how the schools that most of the schools we cover are more left of neoclassical, which in our minds is pretty right. Um, depending on who you ask, it could also be seen as central. Probably is more central, but, you know, here at Oberlin, it's all relative. Um, anyway, so Austrian's pretty far right, and that is interesting. Um, we'll get into the details of that because in some ways it does allow for more liberties. It's kind of in line with the libertarian viewpoint. Um, but anyway, let's talk a little bit about the history. Yeah, so this school was founded by Carl Menger, who wrote the book Principles of Economics, which was published in 1871. Interestingly enough, uh, he was not Austrian. He worked at the University of Vienna, and some of his friends gave him the name, the Austrian school, sort of as a derogatory term, and it just happened to stick. But fun fact, there is very little Austrian ties to the Austrian School of Economics. Wow, I didn't actually know that. Okay, so last week um, we used Hajun Chang's book, The Economics, A User's Guide, when we were talking about behavioralist economics, and as we sort of mentioned, there's this chapter in this book that talks about all the different alternative schools of thought. And so they cover Austrian in the book, and they have these really nice one-liners that say, like, what is this school about? So we read the behavioralist one for you last week. Um, And so this week, we're going to read the Austrian one for you. And the Austrian one-liner says, We can't begin to understand the market, so we should just leave it be. Yeah, so that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, very familiar. You may have heard this kind of ideology before if you've ever heard of libertarianism. Uh, Our good friend Ron Paul, who ran for president in 2008, was a libertarian. And this is an interesting story. He was actually, he is an Austrian economist. And he was quoted, I think when he won the Iowa caucus, he was quoted saying, we're all Austrians now. So this lines up very much so with the libertarian ideology of leave things alone and they'll work it out by themselves. And this relates to a lot of things that we've talked about before, like the idea that the market can regulate everything or the idea of the invisible hand. 
sort of any non-interventionist stance that you could take on the economy uh, really falls in line. I would say that Austrian is is sort of the most extreme example of that kind of policy. Yeah, definitely. And so for those of you who have been listening in to our previous episodes, you might be saying, well, this sounds a lot like neoclassical. Yes, it does. They actually have some similar roots, but a big distinction between the two is that they both hold this idea that the market can more or less work itself out, and therefore we should leave it to the market um, and not intervene, aka the invisible hand. But the biggest difference within that is that Austrians believe the market is too complex, um, we can't control it, so let's just leave it alone, versus neoclassical economists who say, we can understand it, it's not too complex, it's just this is how it works best, is if we don't interfere. The funny thing is that the reality is probably somewhere in between those two. We definitely don't fully understand the market. It's a very yeah. complicated <laughs> system. Uh, but I, I certainly think we've come a long way. Uh, in fairness, like I said, this school was founded in 1871, but it has been built on since then. So what we're talking about is is pretty representative of modern day Austrian thinkers. Yeah, totally. Um, so this school, or at least the way we teach it and have read about it, is sort of set up with these different propositions or like main ideas. Um, So the first proposition is that only individuals choose. Yeah, so um, this idea that only individuals choose, though it might sound pretty common sense, we sort of take issue with this. And I know we've talked about this before with our best friend or frenemy, homo economicus, but this idea that an individual makes a choice by himself without thinking about the way that his choice affects others, only thinking about his own utility level. And if we haven't talked about utility yet, that is just a word that economists use to basically describe value, but not necessarily in money. It's sort of ascribed in these random point values. Yeah, except for that the points have no value in of themselves. It's all relative. So it's just about what gives you more or less utility. Yeah, how much it's worth to you. This idea of making individual decisions based on individual utility, individual action, overlooks the idea of how institutions and family structures and work structures and other group structures that exist in our society affect our decision-making economically. Yeah, totally. So um, in an upcoming episode, we will be talking about a different school, New Institutional Economics, And so this school talks a lot about institutions. Obviously, I won't go into that now because it's a whole other episode. Um, But something that's interesting is they talk about the role a little bit of the individual within the institution. And what's kind of crazy to us, at least, is that the Austrian school ignores the fact that the individual operates within institutions. There's this notion of rationality that relates back to homo economicus and that define rationality in a certain way that allows for some of the irrational things or things that might seem irrational because there's the notion that any choice you make is rational even if it doesn't seem that way so it's just interesting to think about all the different ways they can talk about rationality and individualism and how they can be problematic or make sense yeah so that is one of the weird things about Austrian is that Uh, And we'll talk about this. Let's move on to Proposition 3, which says that the facts of social science are what people believe and think. So that plays into this idea um, of the decision that you make is the most rational one once you've made it. Um, So I don't know. This is kind of this idea that we 
must be operating in the most efficient way and that we wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't the most efficient way. And so whatever people believe is what this is saying is the facts that we will make decisions based off of and then those facts will be, I guess, quasi-rational is sort of the within the world that these thoughts have created. So whatever decision you make is the rational decision because it's the decision that you've already made ties really nicely into this third proposition, which says the facts of social science are what people believe and think. Now, I'm sure bells are going off in all of your heads. This is really relevant right now, thinking about facts and fake news and what's real and what isn't and, you know, sort of feel like we're living in a world today where the facts are kind of whatever people believe. Um, but I don't agree with that. And Julia, I know you don't agree with that because I see you <laughs> shaking your head at that idea. Um, but I think what they're getting at here, the founders of the Austrian school are getting at, is this idea that because they've chosen to not intervene with the market at all, they have to believe that every decision that someone makes is being being made based on the information that they have to the best of their ability and that that's i guess this is sort of getting at the central tenet of austrian that i don't like but it's sort of this idea that you can't improve and so once the decision has been made it has to be called the most rational decision because that's just the decision that has been made or that's just the we've talked about asymmetrical information before um and proposition three that i just read is just ignoring that idea completely it's sort of erasing this problem of asymmetrical information and just saying let's just not worry about having everyone have the information let's just let everyone make their decision based on the information we have which as we know leads to a lot of people making the wrong decisions going off that idea that asymmetrical information exists and that they're saying like let's just ignore that because there's nothing to really be done about that um, I mean, they don't really address asymmetrical information specifically, but that's one example of why, or sort of evidence to us at least, that there's something lacking in this school. Because it's like, clearly, that is a solvable problem. I yeah. mean, to completely solve the asymmetric information, not solvable, but there are lots of ways to make sure that both buyer and seller are more equally, at least, um, informed about what's going on. So there's just little things like that that we're very critical of. Um, I think, as we've said before, we're try, we try in all the schools we read to be critical and to not just sort of take them as fact because it can be easy when you're reading about feminist economics or something that just like resonates with us. Um, you can clearly hear from what we've just said that we do like feminist economics. <laughs> yeah, that, that we're just quick to be like, yeah, I must all be right because we're feminists. Um, and so at the same time, we are going to be more critical of Austrian because it's against our beliefs. Um, but I think that there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence to support some of the critiques that we have, at least. Yeah, it's also, it's not all bad. Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, when I was preparing for this episode and I was doing a little bit of research, I sort of felt like maybe I needed to just give a disclaimer that um, you're talking to two really big interventionists right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm someone who's interested in getting a job in government. I want to basically be a regulator. So if there's anyone you're going to talk to that's going to not agree with a non-interventionist position, it's probably us too.
So moving along through these propositions, we're not going to touch on all of them in depth, but I do just want to mention what Proposition 4 is. Proposition 4 states that utility and cost are subjective. So basically this means that as opposed to just value being subjective, the cost side is also subjective. And the reason that I think it's relevant to even bring this up is because we were talking a little bit before about utility and what that is. And so basically they're saying that, of course, utility is subjective because utility is like based on people's preferences. You're saying that you get more value or more out of eating ice cream than you do out of eating spinach, for example. Right. But cost, not something you usually think about as that subjective, right? Yeah, because you kind of think whatever the market says it should be, it is. And you also think about how, you know, producers need to meet a certain bottom line. And so they're not choosing the co- I mean, obviously, they'll make it things more expensive if that if they can. But otherwise, they usually can't do that because that would mean they were a monopoly because otherwise they're competing against other companies and they need to keep prices low, but they can only keep them so low. Right. Yeah. So I mentioned a few jargony words there, like monopoly. Um, monopoly just means that one person has total control of the market. But yeah, so just thinking about how how costs are subjective is, is interesting, and I think it also harkens back to what we're saying about rationality and them having a nuanced idea about ra- what rationality is in the Austrian school. Right, but this actually was like a pretty important uh, realization in that Austrian brought to economics. And while we're on that point, this is another thing that I found while I was preparing for this. Um, opportunity cost was actually coined and first formulated by uh, Austrian by an Austrian economist, which I think is I think ties into what we're saying here about subjective cost. Um, opportunity cost, I'll define that first, means the cost of doing something else. So the opportunity cost of me recording this podcast at 10 p.m. on a Monday night is that I'm not hanging out with my friends right now. Yeah, or they often will use these examples in textbooks where it's like, if this famous like football player is mowing your lawn, they could be playing football much better, and that, for whatever reason, is much more valuable to society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. It's basically just this idea of you know, the cost of the opportunities you're missing by doing whatever you're doing at that moment. So that definitely ties into this idea of cost being subjective. It's kind of this idea that your individual utility or opportunity cost of taking a specific action or buying a specific product as opposed to another product uh, really affects what you're willing to pay for it. Yeah, totally. And then also one important thing to bring out there, since we are being so critical of Austrian, is that they have made some positive contributions to the field. So opportunity cost is a really big thing within neoclassical, and it's really, really interesting and important to the field, and I think is actually something valuable. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to note that we do talk very critically about neoclassical. I mean, I know that in our first episode we discussed it, uh, and we refer back to it quite often. And we do see neoclassical sort of as this hegemonic force that has in a lot of ways sort of stunted our economic education, but it is the only economics education that we've ever gotten. So it's all good and well for us to sit here behind this mic and talk about all of these other schools and all of the problems with neoclassical, 
But Julia and I are nerding out about the fact that Austrians actually founded Opportunity Cost because that's a huge part of what we've learned in college. Yeah. Proposition six is also an interesting one. It says private property and the means of production is a necessary condition for rational economic calculation. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> what a mouthful. <laughs> Let's unpack that a little bit. Um, part of what they're saying here is that private property is really important to an economic system. Uh, I don't know. That's that's a very that's a complicated thing in itself and. Part of the reason that this is complicated is because it sort of erases the possibility of socialism uh, completely. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, it's really funny to think about that because it's like, they're saying that you can't have public, like public space basically doesn't work. I mean, not fully, but that like, you need to have these bounds um, to like create this economic system. Um, but what's sort of funny at the same time is that they keep sort of calling for, like, no government intervention, but who creates and controls property law? So, I mean, it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, this is, I mean, again, I feel like a broken record, but I will come back to this idea many, many times. Uh, it's it's very, very central to sort of my critical thoughts about the economic system that we live in right now. Uh, but... One thing that I really take issue with is this idea that that government intervention uh, is something that's optional. It's not optional. Uh, we live in a huge country uh, with a lot, a lot of diverse needs, and there is no reality in which the United States functions without a regulatory system and a government that intervenes in the market. Uh, that's just not a modern reality that's possible. So I find it particularly frustrating when schools like Austrian um, and politicians that, you know, follow along this sort of right-leaning libertarian type line talk about the market as if it could exist without regulation when in reality that that is not even close to a possibility any longer. No, not at all. Also, this idea, going back to what I was saying before, that like property value or creating that is controlling the market in a certain way. So I mentioned last week about this book, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, which was written by Hajun Chang, the same guy who wrote the... The e- user's guide. Yes, to economics um, that we read the chapter from in the in the Exco. So he talks about, basically, here's capitalism. It's this, like, ideal thing where there's no government intervention and the market is beautiful and it works itself out and markets are great because they create efficiency they don't care about equality but anyway he says yeah we think we have capitalism in the u.s but if you actually look at the system it's not capitalism it's definitely much closer to capitalism than say france or many other countries in the world but it is still has some socialist values it's somewhere on the spectrum between the two and then he basically argues that it's impossible to have complete capitalism and that's sort of what austrian supports
So moving on to Proposition 7. So Proposition 7 states, the competitive market is a process of entrepreneurial discovery. And so like within this, they talk about how competition sparks creativity and invention. And I think that this is one of the really useful observations from Austrian. And I think it's one of the good things about capitalism, dare I say it. Um, (laughs) I do think that Emma and I both see that while we don't believe that capitalism, especially in the form that we have in the United States, is at all the best structure, that there are some good things that have come from it. So if you think about healthcare, it's like a very interesting thing and it's incredibly messed up system and that is so much the fault of capitalism. But there is some small good thing that has come from that, which is that all this competition has led to the invention of all types of technologies and medicines that are saving people's lives. I mean, you know, people used to not get vaccinated and children would die all the time. And that just doesn't happen anymore. And I'm not saying that that couldn't happen in a socialist society, but there is something about capitalism and this competitive nature of it that has, for whatever reason, produced innovation. Yeah, absolutely. I think innovation is the key word here. And I don't even think you're giving it quite enough credit. I, I wouldn't call this one little thing that capitalism did for us. I think that this is a really big deal. I think that uh, competition today... I mean, we can talk about the environment as a whole other issue, but if you look at technology today, I think that in a non-competitive market, we wouldn't even be close to where we are now. Okay, we have a few more propositions before we wrap up, and Proposition 8 is kind of a difficult one. It's a little jargony, but it basically says money is non-neutral, which means that money is subject to distortion. Um, yeah. I'm going to be 100% honest with you all in saying that even I'm not totally 100% clear on what this means, but I can give you some insight, um, which is that when they say distortion, they're really referring to inflation. So basically, they're saying that if money had no value in of itself, then we wouldn't have inflation. And that's just a truth that, you know, for us to explain to you in, you know, five minutes, isn't really gonna happen, but I'll do my best. Um, Basically, inflation is about the value of money. Um, So money actually does have a value, and that's why $5 buys you much less now than it did in 1950. Yeah, just to clarify, when Julia says money has a value, um, we're not talking about the value that's on the face of the bill that says one or five. We're talking about what it's worth in the long term, which surprisingly is not always the number that is printed on the bill. Yeah, well, it's more like what can that buy you? It's just about how time makes things cost more and that that's basically saying that money, money's not neutral. Money's not just one stagnant thing where $5 always for now and forevermore will always buy you, you know, a decaf sandwich or whatever. Right, exactly. All right, so the final proposition we're going to touch on today, um, exciting, is (laughs) proposition number 10, which reads, social institutions often are the result of human action, but not of human design. So that's sort of complex and scary sounding, but I think what they're really getting at here is something that we've talked about throughout this episode, which is sort of this main idea of Austrian economics that we do not get the economy, so we shouldn't deal with it. Um, So it's kind of saying, if you think 
about the entire economy as an institution, that did happen because of human actions. Humans deciding to buy things and not buy things, et cetera, et cetera, has led to the economy we have today. But it wasn't like somebody sat in a room and said, I'm going to create interest rates, I'm going to create inflation and loans and stocks and bonds and kept going until the economy appeared. Um, so I think that also can apply, or at least they would like to apply that concept to smaller things than the economy. But that's sort of the general overview and the way that that fits into what Austrian's all about. Yeah, and I think for me, this really uh, sort of goes back to this idea um, of the Proposition 3. If you don't remember, it said the facts of social science are what people believe and think. Um, I feel like these things are kind of connected in that it just is taking the power away from the consumer completely. Um, it's, it's acting as if there is no choice involved in what we're doing. It's um, you're making the most rational decision and that's the decision that you were always destined to make. And that's not really how it is. I, I think that there is a lot of choice and that there are different options and that in some ways our society and our institutions are designed. I mean, they certainly aren't perfect. And, you know, people say, God, we make plans and God laughs. And I agree with that. I think that we don't get things right all the time and they don't always turn out how they should. But I do think that institutions are fundamentally a human design. Yeah, I think I both agree and disagree. Scandalous. Ooh. <laughs> um, well, just, I don't, I don't really think that the school is trying to say that people don't make choices. I think they actually are really about that. But I do think they don't think enough about how institutions affect those choices. And maybe that's what you were saying. But I think that there are a lot of institutions that just sort of are bigger than us. And I think that that really comes to things like we talk about institutionalized racism. And so if you think about sort of like the institution of whiteness, if you think about institutions as more conceptual and not as like the Fed, yeah, then I think this applies. But yeah, I think definitely if you're going to talk about like the way our country is set up, it is really based on actual human design flawed as it may be, that does have value and that wasn't totally just humans doing things and things happening. Right. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what I'm getting at is that, and I think part of me is jaded from reading a lot of articles about economics in which the consumer and the planner are put at odds against each other. Just to clarify what I mean by that, because that was definitely a little economics major jargon. Um, the consumer is just us, like the normal person that is being affected by these policies. And the planner, we like to refer to this person, the social planner, uh, sort of a anonymous figure that works somewhere in the government, maybe for some kind of regulation type situation. It's not really specified, but there is this idea of this sort of all-knowing planner, the person that's making the rules. And I feel like this school is putting the planner and the consumer at odds and is saying the consumer doesn't know what they're doing and the consumer is just sort of like along for the ride. And I think that's what I was getting at. That's the thing I take issue with. Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair claim to make. I think it's like the interesting thing about this school for me, at least, is that I think in a way, it is more complex than neoclassical and therefore more insightful and that they they seem to be a little more cognizant and, and recognize that humans are humans and do weird things, but then the 
conclusions they draw from that are, like, where I take issue more so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think you're getting at something really interesting with this idea that in some ways Austrian is sort of so far to the right and so absolute in what it says, and it seems kind of crazy and clumsily worded, but in some ways it is a lot more complex than neoclassical um, in sort of understanding the fact that people can't always make the rational, rational, I'm using air quotes, decision. as we sort of wrap up Austrian here, um, is that there's this idea within the school that Austrian is supposed to be universally applicable. Um, so it examines man and his choices, and I just put man into air quotes, and I think right there that already for me is a red flag, that it can't be universally applicable if they're using man to describe humans. Word. It's, it's just like clearly you're missing something there. This is clearly rooted in some sort of patriarchal ideals. In all fairness, it was from the 1870s. <laughs> but, like, that doesn't mean that it... Not an excuse! Yeah, I mean, I get why it happened, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't deeply rooted in patriarchal ideas. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, do you think it's universally applicable in any way? Well, I guess it depends what you mean by applicable. Um... I mean, it's really difficult to say because I wouldn't call Austrian a full... It's not a full-on social system. It's not even a full-on economic system. Like we've said, neoclassical... I mean, the way that we talk about these schools on here is not in a way that could replace neoclassical. It's in a way that would add to them and enhance them. Yeah. I Yeah, no, definitely. I was just thinking, as you were saying that, that the one thing I will say is that I think Austrian is developed not more so, well, maybe more so, but in a way that it is more, like, set up to replace neoclassical, just in the sense that, like, feminist economics is looking at specific issues of, like, gender and sexuality and identity that need to be there but could not take over neoclassical because obviously there are other issues in revolt like incorporated into the study of the economy yeah but i do i don't think that austrian is universally applicable and i think that it would be doing a huge disservice if you just replaced neoclassical with austrian but i'm just saying that i think it's not as useful to supplement neoclassical the way like the other schools will talk about yeah, this, this is definitely a more fully formed school, and that's because it's also one of the oldest schools that we'll talk about. Um, but to answer your question, do I think this is universally applicable? Absolutely not. Um, I don't think that this is applicable at all. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that I can't really imagine a world in which we truly did not value... I mean, as a as coming from like an economist perspective, just as an econ student, if I were to think about that, even though we do learn neoclassical, which really does not consider institutions all that much, Austrian specifically says institutions do not matter. It says individuals are the only things that matter. It doesn't just neglect institutions, it looks at institutions and it throws them into the garbage. 
So for me, I think that that is just a that's a deal breaker. What about you? Uh, fair enough. I think again, it's it's more universally applicable just in the sense that the value of looking at the individual is that is what composes the world. You know, like economies are made up of individuals I think that's like a true statement Mm -hmm. but I again agree that those individuals are working within institutions um I do think also like I was saying how feminist is like very specific but we do talk about new institutional and sometimes I when I read that school which again we will get to in a future episode I start to think like this maybe could replace neoclassical (laughs) I mean I would want ecological and feminist and a couple of the others there with it but I get kind of excited about it and I think it's because it addresses what Emma was just talking about it addresses institutions and recognizes that institutions on every level from your family to the entire economy inform the way humans behave and therefore are more informative to look at than individuals yeah absolutely we are two institution loving gals I'll say that (laughs) can't lie there all right, um, so I think we could talk for a couple minutes quickly about um, any updates on us being women in economics, <laughs> uh, and then then say goodbye to you all. Yeah, we like to uh, get the money stuff out of the way in the beginning, and then uh, get the babe stuff in on the back end. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Austrian is particularly interesting in the lens of being a woman in economics or just being a woman in the world, for that matter. Because a lot of these assumptions that it relies on are historically patriarchal. Things like private property and... I mean, this was this was written in the 1871, so... <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. We're talking about a time when women did not have private property. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. I was just thinking a bit about how, like, this week... Um, so I'm also a religion major. Don't know if I've said that here on the show, but I am. Um, and we, I was talking with somebody who they're interviewing for the modern religious thought position. And I've always had problems in those classes because basically the, there's this idea within the field of modern religious thought that you're supposed to master all these dead white dudes, philosophies (laughs) of religion. And then you're supposed to come into class and you're supposed to just be like, well, Kant said this, and Nietzsche said that, and it becomes this very, like, bro-y, like, fest of, like, who can one-up each other, and who has the best critique of these masters, and so then it kind of prohibits learning, because if you don't know anything about it, you're, like, too intimidated to engage, and I think that there's sort of a similar thing here with Austrian, of, like, in terms of it being a response to neoclassical, um, not, which is kind of, partially inaccurate because they developed it's not like Austrian developed after neoclassical but if you like just want to talk about them in conversation with each other and you want to talk about Austrian potentially one day replacing neoclassical I think it's just like the same idea as like Nietzsche commenting on Kant where it's just like a bunch of men trying to say like no 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 you're wrong I got it right but it's like again here we are going to ignore women and we're going to ignore all the other oppressed peoples of the world, you know, people of color, trans people, 
LBGDQ plus the whole works. And it's just like so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. It definitely gets demoralizing week after week going through these readings um, that white men wrote. Uh, they don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They, you know, they don't think about our needs. And though, in fairness, the needs of a woman in 1871 was probably still quite different than the needs of us today. It still does feel like we've never been part of the conversation. And when you look back on the old masters, as you say, um, and sort of the the heroes of this of this discipline, they are not women. No, they're really not. It's yeah, pretty devastating. It is. It's something that's come up is like Oberlin <laughs> hires new professors. It's like, hello, can you give us one more woman? We have one on staff. Yeah, we have one woman like professor right now at Oberlin College. I mean, in the economics department. Right. <laughs> Uh, one woman in the whole but I just college. wanted to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually talked to her before um, about the hiring process because that's always been something that has been really difficult for me is not having too many role models in the field and also not having too many mentors just in school. Um, yeah, that you totally. can that you can go to and that you can talk to. It is late, as we said. We are especially tired now. Um, <laughs> but we've had a lot of fun tonight. Um, so anyway, thank you all for listening in. This is Babe Stock Money! Money.